We're going to be in uh, Ecclesiastes 7 this morning. I'm excited to talk to you about this. Where did Brent go? Brent, I don't know if you remember this. You probably don't. It's totally okay. You were one of the first people when we were at Alcoa High School 16, 17 years ago to welcome Heather and I. It's when Heather was, was pregnant with Hayden. I'm like, who is this dude with the huge belt buckle and hat? You were so warm and, and inviting. So I just appreciate you, brother. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for making me feel welcome at River Oaks. So while, while you're turning to, to chapter 7, uh, I, I got a question for you. So who can tell me the movie where this poem by Robert Herrick is, is featured? Gather ye rosebuds while ye may. Old time is still flying. This same flower that smiles today, tomorrow will be dying. I see you smiling, James. Dead Poet Society, okay? Dead Poet Society is the answer. Welcome to movie night at the Cassius, okay? <laughs> Love this movie. It was one of my favorites as, as a teenager. One, it had Robin Williams, right? And it had him in this perfect role where he was able to let loose with his sharp wit and sincerity. Mostly I love the movie because it hit me at the right time. Same age as these characters. Same age as they're figuring out life. It was a movie that made me realize my own mortality. And at the time, that shook me. That's something I'd never thought about before. As movies can sometimes do very effectively, they can put their finger right on the problem of the human condition, right on that place where we see the challenge. Even now, just thinking about Mr. Keating and him saying, we're, we're food for, for worms, boys. We're food for worms. Seize the day. That's, that was his message. He wanted those boys to wake up examine their lives, to live their lives with intentionality, with purpose, with passion. But as is usually the case with the movie, they miss the solution, right? The solution for dead poets was self-actualization, being true to yourself. Now, as Christians, that leaves us empty, but we still have the question. And we see this question in chapter 6, verse 12. Who knows what is good for a man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which passes like a shadow. We have to face our own mortality. And then who can tell us what will come after us? So Keating tried to get those boys to listen to him, to learn. Even that, that scene where he's standing there, having them look at the pictures of all the young men who thought they were never going to die, and to hear from them, seize the day. We need to listen to Solomon this morning. We need to hear his wisdom, the one who's come before, of, before us. What's good for us the few days of our short lives and what comes after? And chapter 7 has those answers for us this morning. So let me read. We'll start in 6.12. For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? A good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, 
For by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it's not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he's made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. So brothers and sisters, we'll get to, to see what is, what is good for us, the short days of our lives, and what comes after. We'll see this in Ecclesiastes 7 this morning. He's encouraging us, Solomon here, to, to lay it to heart. We see that in, in verse 2. The wise will lay this to heart. But even wisdom has its limits. So we see that our ultimate good will be found in verses 13 and 14, that we can trust God in adversity as well as prosperity. We can stop fighting him and start trusting him. And that's our main point this morning. It's very simple, very straightforward. God knows what is good for us, so we need to trust him in hard times and in good. And we've learned throughout Ecclesiastes that life is not a straight path. It's often crooked, and it's almost always out of our control. So we're going to go through the passage, again, answering what's good for us, and what we'll see is what's good for us is to accept the reality of our own death, for us to lay it to heart, for us to grow in wisdom in verses 5 through 12. It's wisdom. It offers protection. It offers advantage and knowledge. And then finally, to consider. Consider God in prosperity and adversity. So with accepting here, accepting the reality of our death in verses 1 through 4, we're really at a place where it's basically a funeral. The funeral is center stage. We've got in verse 1 an ointment that would have been a luxury for those who were rich, applied to a body at the time of burial. In verses 2 and 4, we see the house of mourning, that that's better. And we see grief in verse 3 as the result of loss. But the questions are, are there for us. Why? why? Why would the day of death be better than the day of birth? Why would the house of mourning ever be better than where there's a party taking place? And why is sorrow ever better than laughter? And the answer for us here is in our perspective. What are you looking for? Are you looking for entertainment? Are you looking for fun? Or will we listen to Solomon and look for his wisdom? In verse 1, we see the difference between the beginning of a person and their end. The difference between potential and fulfillment. A baby, nothing against babies, love some babies, okay? But that's an unknown. 
It's, it's potential. At a funeral, we've, we've got the person's death. We have their name. We have their reputation. Who were they? What was their life about? Potential versus fulfillment is what we're seeing in verse 1. But then why is a funeral home better than where a party's taking place? I distinctly remember Eaton's funeral home in, in, in Moxville, North Carolina. That's In that small town, if you died, that's where they took you. That's who handled it, okay? It was Eaton's funeral home. And that place, it had a particular look. When you walked in, it even had a particular smell. It was perfumed. The, the, the lighting in there was by design. It was, it was lightly rose-colored and amber-colored with those lights that shine up, not down. There were couches and chairs. You still remember where they were placed, where the families would sit so you could go and pay your last respects. There were alcoves where the caskets went. And as a child, I hated everything about that place, everything. I mean, I'm sure that the sights and the softly playing music and the way it was comfortably set up was all to take your mind off of what was going on, but it couldn't change the fact it was a funeral home. Everything about it revolved around death. So perhaps you've had similar thoughts or experiences. So why? Why is there wisdom to be found at a funeral home instead of a party? One, just think about the type of conversations that take place in both. Now, I I don't know about you, but the the party situation is is hard for me. The the introvert in me is like, how are we going to do this small talk thing? Okay, the weather, yes, it's been hot. The vols, yes, they're terrible. What else can we talk about? You know, the, the small talk aspect, that's, that's tough. But man, a, a funeral, even just the conversation there of being able to look somebody in the eye and say, how are you doing? And mean it. The, the thoughts and the feelings and the experiences that blow away the distractions of normal life so that you could talk about something meaningful. Just even the conversation is an example. Death has a way of clearing our minds and waking us up. For anybody that's ever had their, their water heater to go out and you've got to be somewhere on time, so you're taking a shower anyway in that ice-cold water, it's bracing, it wakes you up, it shocks your system. That's death. You end up appreciating the warm water, because of the cold. Death has a way of making us appreciate life. Those who've grieved and suffered, they can appreciate laughter, that belly laugh, that first belly laugh after something horrible has happened to you. It's so much richer. It's so much more meaningful because you know life without laughter. So death, bringing clarity to life, it's, it's always been a way of the wise. And we've got uh, Marcus Aurelius, and sorry, growth group, you've already heard this story, you've got to hear it again. We've got Marcus Aurelius, he was the emperor of the Roman Empire, 161 AD. And according to the writings of Tertullian, when the emperor would return from battle, they would parade down the middle of the streets there in Rome, there were people standing and uh, all around up in terraces, throwing down the roses, chanting the name, yelling their names in victory. Except Marcus Aurelius, he had a slave, a servant in his chariot who had one job. 
And that servant's sole responsibility was to keep saying at the back of his head, remember, you're just a man. Remember, you're going to die. Remember, you're just a man. So in the middle of this, in the middle of adoration, celebration, he wanted to be reminded of his own mortality. Memento mori, it's, it's Latin for remember you must die. Everyone from Stoics to Puritans, they've used this phrase, this concept, to shape how they live their lives, living with the end in mind. Some would carry coins like this one. It's probably easier for you to see it up there. <laughs> you carry coins like this one, memento mori. Puritans would carve skulls on their gravestones to remind themselves of the shortness of life. Paintings, okay, paintings, 17th century paintings like this, the, the vanity of life. We see beauty, we see time, we see the vanity of it because death comes. Well, that was then, and this is now. They kept death close as a sober reminder. Death helped them see their limitations. Death helped them set their priorities. Not so much with our culture. Our culture is obsessed with health, where success was success, with being content, with happy endings. We love happy endings. This means that we avoid sorrow. We avoid grief. We avoid death. And brothers and sisters, we're more foolish because of it. We keep death sanitized and, and distanced. Think about even the way that we discuss death. We don't have funerals. We have celebrations of life. No wakes in homes, no family cemeteries. We keep mortality so far away that we can't learn from it. And we're more foolish as a result. When death does finally touch our lives, we look at it as this tragic intruder that we weren't prepared for. We suppress the reality of our death instead of dealing with it. And between you and me, when I am least likely to think about death and what that means, it's because I'm in love with this world. I think this is my home. So I deny the reality of death. So Ecclesiastes here offers us an opportunity to consider to think about something that we ordinarily wouldn't want to think about, our own mortality. So what would be different for you if you carried this concept of memento mori with you? Think about verse 1, your name, your reputation, who you are. This is a fair question. What will people say about you when you die? Man, he really loved football and movies. He talked about those every single sermon. <laughs> he was so driven and successful. Man, she loved her children. She kept such a beautiful home. She was always so hospitable. How about he, he oozed love for Jesus? She tried so hard to point people to the joy that can be found in Christ. She so embraced Christ's sacrifice for her. That's how she lived her life, in sacrifice for others. Young folks, this could be a place, I know, if I was 15, 16, I'd be like, great, the preacher's talking about death. I'm asking you to listen. Listen, don't live 
in the illusion that death is down the road, as if you had time to amend your eulogy. Like you could put off the change that the shortness of your days demands. The question is, what would people say about you if you died right now? That's what verse 1 forces us to ask. A good name or a name that was obsessed with anything and everything but Christ. What would you want them to say? And as long as you are alive and as long as you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, change is possible. You can close that gap. So death forces us to ask while we're still alive, what kind of person should I be? This is not morbid reflection, not for the Christian. We, we, we live a life that in some ways is dead. We read it this morning in Romans 6. We're dead to sin. Christ lived and died so that we could die to sin, so that we could die to our own desires. Why? So that we could be alive in Christ, so that we might have eternal life. So we live with the tension and the perspective of a religion that holds death and life very close. We need not fear death because Christ defeated death through his own death. And ultimately, we gain him, along with Paul in Philippians 1, to live as Christ and to die is gain. We know that the end of our short days, our mysterious, futile, frustrating enigma of a life, we know that we gain Christ. So by all means, carpe diem, seize the day, but know as a Christian, we do it quorum Deo, in the face of God, in his presence, with him. So secondly here, we grow in wisdom. What's good for us in our short days is for us to grow in wisdom. So how do we know that that's good How do we know that that's the answer to the question? We look at verses 11 and 12 in chapter 7. Wisdom is good like an inheritance. Right there it is for us. An advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. The advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Look at all the positive aspects of wisdom. It protects, it preserves, it's like an inheritance. So then how does this work itself out in our lives? How do we see that wisdom is better than foolishness? Two ways in these passages here. We'll see that the wise, they listen. And they're very specific about who they listen to. And we'll see that they're also patient. The wise want patience. So verse 6 has this interesting play on words. It might sound something like the laughter of fools sounds like nettles burning under kettles, okay, there's, there's a poetry to it, a sound. Anybody that's been camping, anybody that just loves a campfire, all right, you've probably had that dry pine branch or cedar branch, you've thrown it into the fire, and the result is just a little bit of loud crackling and a very quick whoosh smoke, it's gone. It's not there for the long haul. Similarly, flattery, laughter of fools. Solomon is helping us see that the pain of loving criticism, it's so much better than the flattery and the laughter of fools. We, we know that a wise rebuke is good for us, but man, it's, it's so much easier 
to laugh. That's, that's the easy route. It's so much more fun. So we might be thinking, if we're honest, going, man, Solomon, come on. You're kind of the killjoy here. I would like to laugh a little, <laughs> okay? He's not against joy. He says so later on right there in uh, 14. In prosperity, be joyful. We'll talk more about that. He wants us to have joy. He just wants us to be aware of foolish laughter, fleeting, meaningless, the laughter that, that we allow to distract us from what's actually important, the laughter that we'd maybe rather turn to than a wise rebuke. So I'd ask you this morning to, to think through that. Like, who, who are you drawn towards? Are you drawn more towards the person who is, is so quick-witted they can, they can make you laugh at any time? Or are you drawn towards the person who loves you enough to, to speak wisdom into your life, to give you a rebuke when needed? This is where we need the help of the Holy Spirit. Man, I'd rather laugh. I'd rather have a good time. But to listen to Solomon, he's saying that's foolish. Submit your heart to, to one who would speak wisdom to you. Patience in, in 7 through 10. And we can find the heart of this section right in the second half of verse 8, if you'll, if you'll look at it. The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Patience is better than pride. We know that patience is a virtue. We know that it's a fruit of the Spirit. Solomon helps us see what this looks like. What does patience versus impatience, how does that come out in our lives? Even in verse 7, what's a bribe but a, a quick fix, an impatient solution that corrupts the heart? Verse 8, the end of something, that means the result seeing something all the way through to completion. He's saying the proud boast about what they're going to do, the wise do it. Seeing a project, a friendship, a life through to completion takes patience. Pride is easy. Pride is impatience. Patience is better than pride. So, I mean, we, 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 all, we all know this guy. We may be this guy, but the, the one-up person, okay? And it, I remember vividly in, in high school, all right, it was single A, so I did get to play basketball, point guard, uh, for, for the team. And I, I would, I would, man, it was, it was a few years ago when I'd been working out, but I could jump and I could touch that rim. I could do it. Well, why don't you do it for us now? Now it's a few years ago. Um, I could never touch the rim. Let's be honest. But I'd boast about it. I might flip the bottom of the net. Okay? The proud boast about what they're going to do. The wise do it. Verse 9, be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart or the bosom of fools. And remember, we're answering the question, what's good for us the few short days of our vain lives? And what's good is for us to not be angry. You can hear James here. You can hear his wisdom when he tells us to be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Why? The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. But we do have a wise type of anger that's constructive and acts against evil. That's not what Solomon's talking about. He's talking about foolish anger here. He wants us to see it. Quick anger, rage that serves self, that leads to misery. 
There's, there's a subtlety to this passage, though, that I want you to see. It's the second half of verse 9, where it lodges in the heart. Anger lodging in our heart. That means that the more we default to anger, the more it settles down as a way that we operate. Anger makes a home there, almost like a drug, and the user of anger becomes more and more dependent on it. The results that it gets... The more dependent on anger you become, the less likely you are to try and uproot it. So the temptation, all right, all right tell me what to do. Give me some strategies. Give me some, some ways to address this foolish thing, to attack the behavior that misses it, that misses it. Four times in this passage, Solomon's talking about our heart, what's going on in our heart. And we know biblically that our heart is not just our emotions. It's who we are. It's our intellect. It's our will. It's the seat of of who we are as people. So if we just address the behavior of anger, we miss the heart. James asks again, why do you get angry? Why do you fight? Why do you quarrel? Because you want something and you don't get it. Our anger comes from the heart as a response to unmet desires that we elevate to demands. I want that. I didn't get it. I deserve that. Give it to me. I will fight, quarrel, I will kill you in my heart to get what I want. There's the root of anger. Wisdom would ask us to consider. That's actually rebellion against the one who's brought about the situation to begin with. Anger, that's impatience with God. So what do we do? to keep anger from, from lodging in our heart. Let's, let's take it straight from this passage. We consider our own mortality, and we lay it to heart. We think through this. Do I want to be remembered as a fool who used anger to get my way? I think about what I'm dead to. I'm dead to sin. I'm alive to Christ. Can I overlook this? Do I have to react or since I have the Spirit, can I die to this desire and be even more alive to Christ? Second thing I would consider from this passage, who can make straight what God has made crooked? Consider, has God brought a difficult situation to expose a twisted desire to show you that you need Him more than that thing that you demand? Finally, we go back to James 4. We follow his lead. Since God gives grace, we humble ourselves. We submit to him by confessing and repenting not only of our actions, not only of our anger, but we repent of heart motives and desires. God doesn't stop with just giving forgiving grace. He gives us grace that enables and empowers change. So we ask for it. We we draw close to him, and he draws close to us. Grace that can change the heart of a fool and change those desires. So what's good for a man the few short days of his life? It's desire for grace to be lodged in his heart instead of foolish anger. So verse 10 What's, what's better here? Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. 
Okay, 80s nostalgia, all the rage right now, okay? I think some of you would agree with me about that. I, I'm the first one to geek out a little bit about Stranger Things, okay? And if you want to after the service, I'm not only happy to pray with you, but talk to you about biblical themes that show up in that show, okay? <laughs> but there is, a, there is a distinct appeal to how well they capture the 80s. That seemed like a time where you really could get on your bike whenever you woke up, ride around on your bike all day with your friends, okay? You could hang out, play, all those fun things. Be outside, and obviously the music. There's no question about the music being better in the 80s than it is now. I'll keep Def Leppard. You can have Taylor Swift, okay? <laughs> but let's, let's think about the, the longings underneath the nostalgia, okay? Solomon wants us to consider what's wise Think about the longings underneath. It's, it's not just a desire for the good old days, but it's a longing to escape the present. It may not be obvious at first, but nostalgia and anger, they're connected by way of discontent, impatience with present circumstances. C.S. Lewis is so helpful here. He says that, that nostalgia, that with nostalgia, only the emotionally immature think that they're longing for the past. I'm like, okay, C.S. Lewis, I guess I'm emotionally immature. That's what I thought I was longing for. Help me out here, okay? So what he says is, what you're longing for is that feeling. The feeling. Because really, if I, if I think back to the 80s, what that meant for me was a broken home, loneliness, and no relationship with Christ. Do I really want to go back to that? No, what was underneath that? The longings that we actually experience, they're these tiny pinpricks of eternity. An eternity that's not crooked, but straight. And when we look back and see, man, it was so good. What's actually happening in our hearts is a longing for what Christ can give us if we have the Spirit to be able to see it. And who put that longing there? Ecclesiastes 3 tells us it was God who put eternity in our hearts. We feel, we long for eternity. So be willing to think through when nostalgia pops up. And what's, what's underneath that? What am I actually longing for? And how is it fulfilled in Christ? So where do you turn in times of, of discontent? Do you escape by fantasizing about the past, about the way things used to be yesteryear? Young people, do you escape by fantasizing about the future, what it might be like when I, once I get out from underneath my parents' control and I have freedom? Do you try and control or change the situation with your anger? How do we respond? The wise response is found in verses 13 and 14 because God knows what's good for us and we can trust him. We can trust him in the present we can trust him in adversity. We can trust him in prosperity. We can trust him when our paths are straight or when they're crooked. We don't have to try and escape into the past or escape into our anger. We can trust God. Verses 13 and 14, consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he's made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other 
so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Considering our mortality, that's wise. Pursuing wisdom, that's good. And wisdom helps us trust God, whether our paths are crooked or straight. Solomon says back in in chapter 1, verse 15, what's crooked can't be made straight. In 7, he brings in something completely different. Who made it crooked? Not chance, not fate, not the universe. 7.13 says, consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he's made crooked? And crooked here means bent. It means broken. It's difficult hard. Some might say, well, that's, that's fatalism. No, it's not. Fatalism says, you know what? The world's broken. The world's crooked. The world's bent. So what you should do is just take care of you. You be you. Get as much happiness, toys, adventure as you possibly can because you're going to die no matter what you do. God's sovereignty, God's wisdom says we make our plans but God establishes our steps. We can trust him. Man, we've, we can fully embrace God establishing our steps when things are going well. We got engaged. The baby's healthy. The house sold. The promotion came through. And we should rejoice. That's right there in the passage. Rejoice in the day of prosperity. Be joyful. Don't feel guilty about that. Rejoice, fully embrace God's gifts on days that he makes straight, but but be willing to ask, will we fully embrace God when he also brings adversity? That, That haste and that, yes, of course I trust you in days of joy and prosperity. Is it still there when he chooses to bring adversity? This is Solomon and our Job moment. Job is talking with his wife after they've lost everything, and her advice is to just curse God and die. And Job says, will we accept good from God and not trouble? That's the question for us this morning. Ecclesiastes is repeatedly showing us this world is hevel. I don't know about the rest of you all, but that has worked its way into my regular vocabulary. Oh, this wouldn't work, this wouldn't work. It's hevel. (laughs) I have an increased Wisdom, knowledge to understand what category to put things in that are crooked. He helps so much with this. Life is so full of mystery and futility and this brief life. So what do we do? Solomon says, consider God. He says it twice. Consider, verse 13. Consider, verse 14. That means to submit to. Surrender to. Intentionally think on the truth that God brings adversity. Will we submit to the God of Scripture who is sovereign and works all things to the counsel of his will? Or will we reject him and what he's doing? And your gut response may be, of course, I submit to God. I came here to to hear preaching this morning. I came here to sing worship. I came here to pray. Of course, I submit to God. But I want you to dig a little deeper. Ask yourself who you trust more with your life at this moment, you or God? 
What is crooked in your life right now that if you were God, you would make straight? Where do you think you know better than him? I would encourage us to trust that what's crooked in our life, it's there to make us not trust in ourselves or in our circumstances, but to trust in the Father who loves you. This is, this is where it's, it's so critical for you to be in God's word, where you come to know better the character of the God that we worship. I'm, I'm desperate for this for you. I mean, the, the, the preacher can stand up here and say, please read your Bible. Please read your Bible. And we can try and, you know, hit you with a little guilt. You know, like, if, if you really love somebody, you're going to learn about them. And, well, I mean, that's true. I, I confess my inability to get you to read your Bible. It has to be the Holy Spirit that draws you into the Word where you can learn more about the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and where you can see that He actually, truly is good. We can stand up here and plead with you and beg you to believe that He's good. It will only be in the Word by the power of His Spirit that convinces you that our Father is good. He's not a police officer in the sky waiting to catch you doing something wrong. He's a father who loves you so much he sent his son to pursue you, to redeem you, to ensure your adoption into his own family. He loves you so much that he sent his spirit to sustain you in crooked times, to humble you in prosperous times and to remind you that you are sealed to the Father forever in times of doubt. He gives you himself is how much he loves you, how good he is. So then the truth of God's goodness and his sovereignty, it frees us from fear. His sovereignty, his goodness, it frees us from being paralyzed when we're presented with, with so many decisions and we don't know what to do. Go, do, act in freedom, that you belong to a loving Father who brings about adversity and brings about prosperity for your good and his glory. So we've answered what's good for us. As we come to a close, I want you to consider these, these bookend questions of 612 and 714. What comes after? Now, I know when I say we're about to close, it's like, whoop, I can kind of check out. Don't do that. Stay, stay with me. Stay with me here, okay? Because we know something that Solomon could not know. Despite all of his wealth and his wisdom, we know that the answer to what comes after it can only be found in Christ. We know that the Father and the Son chose what was crooked in order to ultimately set straight what was twisted. Our hearts, all of creation, the Father and the Son agreed that the son would go to the most crooked thing in all of history, a Roman cross. That, there's nothing more crooked than an innocent son of God going to the cross to do what? Set us straight. Set all of creation straight in order to guarantee what comes after. What comes next? 1 Corinthians 15. I'll, I'll consider God who through the res resurrection of his son changes everything. Consider, submit to, surrender to, think on, consider 
our God who takes away from us the dusty death of Adam and raises us in the heavenly glory of Christ, who takes away our dishonor and our weakness and raises us in power. Consider God who takes away our perishable body and raises us imperishable, who takes away our mortality and raises us to immortality. What comes after this crooked world is eternal life secured by the victory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, my brothers and sisters, because we know exactly what comes after, be steadfast, immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord even while life is still crooked, knowing that in the Lord your labor and your life, your adversity, your crookedness, your difficulty, none of it is in vain. It's all submitted to Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you that you know what's good for us the few days of our short lives. So, Father, I pray that you would help us consider our mortality. You would help us consider what's wise And by your spirit, you would press home to us that Christ is our wisdom. That in his death, we have eternal life. In his resurrection, we get to be with you forever. So Father, in in light of of everything in our lives that's, that's crooked, I pray that by your spirit, you would help us look to you, to rest in you, because you're good. In Jesus' name, amen.